elsewhere in the world where you see democracies ending is no longer by coup. Hmm. It's by continuing to pretend to be a democracy. Yes, yeah. So it's a much more insidious, subtle threat. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. In my research, I've shown that people are less invested in democracy than they used to be, that they're more open to authoritarian alternatives to democracy, and that politicians who don't have a real investment in democratic norms keep gaining power. Now, when I've been going around saying this to people over the last years, a lot of them just didn't quite buy it. They asked me, hasn't our country been stable for hundreds of years? And rich democracies around the world? Safe? And as a result, I had one huge fear about the next four years. I thought that Donald Trump and his team might subtly undermine basic democratic norms over time without ever staging a full-on assault that would alarm people. And I feared that as a result, most Americans might sleep through this covert assault on their institutions, not realizing how dangerous this moment is to the very basic foundations of our political system until it's too late. Well, here's the good news, folks. I no longer have this fear. Trump's assault on democracy has been much more extreme than most people expected, and though I'm a pessimist, even more extreme than I expected. The incessant lies from the White House, the executive order on immigration that was an obvious Muslim ban, the ongoing attacks on the independence of the judiciary, on the freedom of speech, on journalists, on newspapers like the New York Times. That is worrying. But at the same time, and in part as a result of this very obvious assault, resistance has been much more energetic and much more clear-sighted than I had hoped. There was the Women's March, there was the spontaneous protests against Trump's executive order, there's hundreds of grassroots groups forming to resist Trump. And a lot of them are realizing that this is not just a matter of opposing policies we disagree with, it is a matter of standing up for the basic foundations of our political system. So one thing is clear. The American Republic won't go down without putting up a huge fight. We are now heading for a big confrontation. That is deeply scary. The worst politics can inflict is much more bitter than the best it can hope to achieve. So I don't relish the coming instability, but it's certainly better than the alternative, a slow, unconscious descent into the darkness that will come if we give up on our democratic institutions. I'm delighted to welcome Ed Luce to the studio. Uh, Ed was the Financial Times' Washington bureau chief from 2006 to 2011 and has been writing a weekly column about America since then, along with leaders and editorials. So here's something I find particularly valuable, an outsider's perspective as a Brit who lives in this country and an insider's perspective as a reporter and analyst who has chased good stories all over the country. Ed is the author of Time to Start Thinking, America in the Age of Descent, and is now uh, writing a new short book on the rise of populism 
and it's threat to the Western liberal order, which he told me he was up till 3 or 4 a.m. last night <laughs> finishing. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, and I, and I apologize if it reduces whatever quality of thought I have. I'm a little bit... Um washed up with this book deadline. This is just a way of uh, setting low expectations. I, I, I find <laughs> that to be a huge difference between British and American students. You know, when I was in Britain and we would write a terrible essay, we would tell our supervisor, our tutor, oh, you know, I'm so sorry I didn't have any time to work on this because he wanted to protect his idea of your intelligence. Whereas my students in the United States always say, oh, but I tried so hard. Yes, an effort is the, you're absolutely right about that. One Britishism I have I have lost is pretending I don't make an effort. <laughs> I do make a lot of effort. Right, and, and it shows what virtue is that you want to protect. In Britain, you want to make sure that people think of you as talented. In the States, you want to make sure that people think of you as hardworking, right? Because, because there's, a, there's a difference in the relative importance of those values. You know, there's something else I've noticed, but I, I've been here 11 years. As new sort of insights occur to me about the difference, the differences between Britain and America. And one that I've recently noticed is that being articulate makes people suspicious. Not that I am articulate. I just mean <laughs> in general. It makes people suspicious that you've got too much felicity with the words and there might be a red flag there about your sincerity. Oh, interesting. And I think that's, I think that there's a deeply rooted American sort of suspicion of European elites, but it's dating back to the aristocracies and the glib, sweet words of people who didn't mean what they were promising. I was trying to hold off talking about Donald Trump for a little bit, but uh, you've already brought <laughs> him up. Um, I mean, there's something there, both in the simplicity of his language, which is obviously something that populists often do and politicians often do to appear authentic. Um, but there's something in in his appeal that goes with breaking all norms, which are partially norms about how a president speaks and what kind of words he uses, but partially being willing to say the very thing that no politician is willing to say, and the fact that he does that makes him authentic. Absolutely. And it, I mean, it is an extraordinary thing, if you think about it, that it has therefore gained him a reputation for truth-telling, of all things that Trump should be reputed for. Yeah. Truth-telling, because he speaks, you know, in a completely different way. None of the codes, none of the lawyered-up sub-clauses you'd have got from Hillary. It, it makes him appear, to be honest, which, I, I mean, right, how right, would that go down? He, in... he says whatever he thinks. That, I mean, this is a real paradox. He does say whatever he thinks at any one time. And yet a lot of what he thinks are lies. <laughs> That's true. I suppose if he believes the lie, you then get into a debate. Is is it a lie? Is, is right. it meant to be intentional? Because he appears to believe a lot of stuff that is demonstrably false. Right. Is that lying? Yeah, I think, right. So I think philosophers would say that it's not lying. Perhaps that's right. I mean, this is one more, you know, op-ed in the ever-growing collection of <laughs> op-eds on Trump and truth. But that actually, the scary thing is not that he's lying, which would involve remembering what the truth is. The scary thing is that he believes whatever is most useful to him at any one point. So we've lived in this country about the same amount of time. You got here in 2006. I got here in 2005. Left for you, came back in 2007. And you were in Britain before then, immediately, were you? I was, yeah. And then before that in Germany? I grew up in Germany and then went to college in England came here for a year to New York, um, spent a year in France, and then, then started doing my PhD in graduate work here and, and right. sort of living on various parts of the East Coast. You know, there's a political story here which has the country changing radically at least twice during our time here, right? Like we came here under George W. Bush, 
Obama wins, the country is seemingly transformed, and then you have the ascent of Donald Trump. But underneath that, there's a story of a country that obviously changes a little more slowly in more complicated ways than those political headlines would suggest. Now, I've been cooped up in, you know, for better or worse, universities and institutions like that. You've done a lot of reporting in the country. How do you think the actual, the real country, not Washington, but the real country has changed over the, these last 10 years? That's that's a very good and and complicated question. You know, I, one of the first books I read when I got here and that stuck with me is Bill Bishop's book, The Big Sort, about how people are sifting themselves apart into mm. ideologically like-minded communities yeah. and um, how that is destroying the space for sort of the center ground in politics. And I think what was interesting about that book and why it's still relevant, well, increasingly relevant, is that what we see in politics is therefore very much reflected in what's happening on the ground sociologically um, with ordinary Americans where they choose to live and work and amongst mm. whom they choose to mix. And we also, of course, see it right up there in the ether in terms of their internet habits and, yeah, and yeah. who they mix with. So in a weird way, you know, I was hoping for a hopeful answer of saying, well, look, I mean, the country has veered wildly twice, but underneath this, there's sort of a lot of continuity and so on. And I guess perhaps there's continuity, but really what's happening is that there's two halves of a mark, and there's increasing two halves of a mark, and so there's no way of representing a bimodal distribution, something where nothing in the center, there's just these two extreme worlds through one person in the presidency. The best representation you can get is that you represent one half of it, for four or eight years, and then you represent the other half of it for four or eight years. And so that the wide veering in the political America actually reflects the really deep polarization in the lived America. I think that's right. I think the United States is taking on some very Latin American qualities. Um, and in what's the sort of hallmark of Latin American politics? It's really not much of a middle class. Mm. Um, you know, a big, a big sort of working class, a big um, elite and wealthy elite, the hacienda classes, and not that stabilizing center that anchors every democracy. And I fear that these wild Latin American style swings you get from orthodoxy to populism mm. and back again are becoming the temper of, of, of American politics, and for very real sociological reasons. That's really interesting. And, and one of the things that makes me worried about what you just said is that it sort of reinforces the need to think of winning the fight against somebody like Donald Trump as a long-term proposition. That actually, and this seems very plausible to me, you know, perhaps we are very likely to win against him in 2020 or in 2024 against some kind of successor candidate. But that's not the end of the story. But what you get is two halves of a system that don't work. You get an establishment politics that leaves too many people behind. Then you get wild counter-reactions against that. People get fed up with these counter-reactions because they don't work. And they see the decline it brings and uh, the political drama that they don't want to be bothered with every day. And so they say, you know what, let's go looking for a safe pair of hands again. Things return to normal for four or eight years, seemingly. And then you go back into another swing of a circle. And of course, those swings can become ever more extreme as well. That actually, if the sort of next 20 years of American politics look like Trump for four, eight years, and then, you know, some kind of safe pair of hands, and then people really get fed up with that safe pair of hands, perhaps the person 
who comes in after that is going to be even more extreme and can build on a deeper tradition of defined democratic norms and a more self-conscious program. I agree with that sense of foreboding about the direction of American politics, but you've written very, very interestingly in the National Journal of Democracy, and I know you're writing a book more mm. broadly on this subject, about um, declining public support for democracy yeah. across, across the West, including in the United States, and particularly pronounced that you brought out very well, I think from the World Values Survey, particularly pronounced amongst younger people mm. and wealthier people. The question I'm fascinated to ask you is what degree do you, do you think the Trump effect in the next four or eight years will change what that scenario you just get sketched out of the swings, would actually degrade it and make it a, a different proposition altogether? So I've been thinking about that a lot, and I've, I think I've just changed my mind over the course of this conversation and what my answer is. So, so the hope that I've had for the last weeks and months, as I said in the intro to the podcast, is that there's a real counter-reaction to Trump's assault on our democratic norms and institutions. And that it might reinvigorate people's belief in democratic values. But one of the reasons why young people are less invested in democracy at the moment, I mean, there's some objective reasons. They are less wealthy. They don't see as many opportunities as the parents did. There's also more sort of subjective reasons. So the parents and grandparents either had direct lived experience of fighting against communism or fascism or some form of contact with what it would mean to not live in a democratic system. And young people don't have that. So to them, the alternative to democracy is relatively abstract. Now, that's not reassuring to me, because that very fact makes them willing to vote for extreme candidates. And once you have an extreme candidate like that, even if you don't like what he's doing, you might be stuck with him. Um, but I was also thinking that now that we're seeing an assault on democratic norms, young people might regain a real attachment to their democratic institutions. And that's my hope. Now, what you were saying makes me think a slightly more complicated story, where the best way of describing how a lot of people have been coming to feel about democratic norms, maybe that they used to be fervently attached to them and they've been becoming tepid. And the hope is that they will now go from being tepid to being strong supporters again. But actually, what may be going on is that a lot of people became tepid, and now they're going to polarize into a subsection that is more deeply attached to democratic norms again, because they see how much good there is in the system, they see how much they might lose. And another subsection that moves from the column of people who are indifferent to a column that has so far been quite small, namely people who are actually against. Yeah, and that's very much an open question. I wouldn't dare provide a clear prediction as to which of those two reactions will be more predominant. I mean, you know, three weeks into Trump, we, we've already seen you know, incredible institutional pushback and a lot of popular organizing. You know, it's a field day in this town in Washington for the ACLUs and all sorts of liberal Absolutely. advocacy groups, yeah. their memberships, their donations. And we've seen a really great and very heartening deployment of humor, hmm. um, which which to me is a great sign of mental and political health. Um, so <laughs> that's that's sort of on the, on the plus side. On the minus side, some of the language I hear from liberal friends or liberals that I sort of pay attention to on the internet or social media or of, um, you know, buying guns, not talking to people who don't agree with them. Survivalism. Hmm. Um, Survivalism of the left suddenly. Of the left suddenly. Not just Peter Thiel, you know, buying his bunker in New Zealand. Um, <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. I mean, it, it's clearly not the way 
you persuade people. It's the way you convince yourselves, or it's what it's what right. you do when you're convinced they are unpersuadable and irredeemable. And I find that and, and very when you dangerous. assume that you have a natural majority, both on values and sort of demographically, right? And one of the things I worry about is that. Every person I, I talk to thinks that Trump is just absolutely historically unpopular. And it's true by comparison to people at a similar stage in the presidency. But he's more popular now in many polls than he was on the day he was elected. That's a very good point. Did you see, is, did, I mean, you obviously watched his inauguration speech, yeah. as did I. I. I was sort of frozen in horror. I could not believe what he was saying. The sort of level of xenophobia, the incendiary language, the contempt for the rest of the world. And I just assumed everybody would share But My visceral of- response. 51% of Americans said the speech was optimistic. Yeah. Well, well, I have another problem with Donald Trump, which is that I actually should stop watching them and start reading them. I had the experience that I watched Trump's speech at the RNC, and I just thought it was a terrible mess and it didn't make any sense. It didn't have any coherence because I hear Donald Trump speak. And, you know, all I can see is the sort of absurdity of it. And now as I'm working on my on my book, I went back to the speech because I wanted to quote parts of it and so on. And I read the whole thing. And I was like, you know what? That's a really effective speech. Um, it's not the speech I agree with. It's a speech that uses every nasty trick in the populist's playbook, but it does so brilliantly. It's the best encapsulation of that populist mindset that I've seen probably. And I did not clock that. I did not realize that when I was watching it. You know, um, uh, Nicholas um, Lemon of The New Yorker, mm-hmm. formerly of The New Yorker, um, said that when he interviewed Dick Cheney, he had interviewed this guy, he was very reassuring. He was like the family solicitor and calm and sort of measured. And he would sort of think, oh, okay, don't agree with him, but, you know, the guy's, right, the guy's guy. grounded. And then he'd read the transcript and his blood would run cold. He's like, um, did he say that? Oh, so that's kind of a mirror it's the inverse. image of, uh, <laughs> of what you've just said about Trump. And both reinforce the view that we should read the text. Right. I absolutely right. agree with that. Yeah, it's a real question about, you know, much is gained by seeing people speak, but but perhaps as much is lost. It's it's an interesting question. Um, I want to, uh, <laughs> sort of the importance of a sense of humor. Germans, as, as, as you know, don't, aren't born with a good sense of humor. I had to uh, acquire <laughs> mine through hard work when I was living in your native country for, for my undergraduate education. <laughs> um, but but the, the, the title of your book made me think of, of a, a German television ad for an English language school. And the plot of it is that there's a guy sort of first day on the job um, who's a Coast Guard uh, and his English is not very good. Um, and, you know, just as he's like his supervisor leaves him alone and he's sitting there on his own with his cup of coffee, um, he gets a call. Um, mayday, mayday, we are sinking, we are sinking. Um, and he says, what are you thinking about? <laughs> uh, so, so the title of your book um, is Time to Start Thinking. I can do THS when I do it consciously. I thought I that normally was fake them. Pitch perfect, um, pitch perfect. America in the age of dissent. Um, so why do you think that we need to think about America's sinking? Well, um, <laughs> the um, 
title is taken from a quote by um, a British um, nuclear physicist, Ernest Rutherford, who said during the Second World War, gentlemen, we have run out of money. It is time to start thinking. And so I picked it from that. And uh, the book, which came out sort of four, five years ago almost, towards the end of Obama's first term, was meant as a, as a really a, a cold shock um, a cold shower, rather, a hard shock mm. to Americans um, about the relative decline in America and the speed with which this is happening. Mm. And I feel that because the right, and I felt at the time, because the right were talking the declinist talk, one that Trump has taken to a whole new level, liberal America and establishment Washington had inured themselves mm. for partisan reasons to what is actually happening out there in the world. Um, First and foremost. It's interesting. One of the things that I found fascinating in the whole Trump election was that, you know, the people I knew who would paint the condition of black Americans as apocalyptic were always on the far left. Absolutely. Right? It's sort of people interested in social justice who point to some of the very, very, very real injustices in this country in sometimes overly apocalyptic terms to say isn't this unbearable? We have to change it. And in order to make that argument, they would sometimes exaggerate just how bad things were. As soon as Donald Trump started talking about how bad the condition of black Americans was, those same people were starting to say, how dare he? They're doing fine. What are you talking about? And it's a very odd flip. So, so I get that fear about, you know, because the right is talking about declinism, the left may be tempted to say in Hillary Clinton's term, America is already great. Absolutely. And that's actually the wrong instinct. I've, I've had some heated discussions with um, liberal friends about the degree to which the middle class are suffering. Hmm. Because, they, if they, again, they, they, they cannot help at a time like this, and I understand why, but filter it through a partisan defense mechanism. Which is, hey, no, they did really well under Obama. Yeah. And it's just not objectively true. They might have done less badly than they would have under uh, Romney or right. um, or McCain, that's for sure. But the partisan filter is getting stronger and it's blinding people to sort of mm. um, bigger picture grasp of what's happening. Right. Um, but I do think, I mean, you're from originally from Germany. Um, you know, this cultural pessimism, which is not something I have, um, cultural pessimism and declinism are closely related on the right. Yes. Oswald Spengler, you know, being a classic example. I think it was Thomas Mann who said that people cultivate a sympathy for the abyss. Mm. Um, and there's a strong tradition of that kind of declinism on the European right, often very closely associated with deeply prejudiced ideologies. But it's interesting how much it's taken hold on a lot of the American right. In Pat Buchanan, classic example of it. And you think that's a relatively new phenomenon? Yes. That is a striking thought, and it helps to explain why there's now this great affinity between the new sort of American far right and the European far right. But when you go back to 1965, 1980, the American right and the continental European right, at least, really didn't have much in common. Whereas now you look at, you know, Trump and Le Pen and Orban, and they're surprisingly similar. And it may be because whereas Europe had long had a deep narrative of decline, America never did because it was the American century and America didn't have to have the same kinds of fears. And now that Europe and America both feel like they're declining relative to Asia and so on, the politics is starting to become more similar. 
I think there's definitely something to that. I mean, what, what was the, the 60s was Goldwater, really. What Goldwater, then Reagan. Right. And it was extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. It was a sort of strong ideological, but optimistic yeah. Yeah. Um, vision of, of politics, of conservative politics. This is not. This is, I mean, the speech you watched, uh, you suffered watching <laughs> of Trump in Cleveland was as un-Reagan as you, it was the most dystopian, bleak, only only exceeded by his inaugural address, mm. the tombstones of factories across America. I mean, the language yeah. is, is of a sort of suicidal right-wing European nationalist who believes his great culture is no longer is is no longer on the ascendant. Um, and that now appeals to uh, enough Americans. So what's fascinating about, about your book is that it was written four years or so ago when, you know, America was pretty optimistic. And you were prescient in that sense. I mean, look, actually, there is a real decline happening. And unless you deal with it, it's going to have bad political consequences and, and very bad economic consequences as well. You know, how much of this is inevitable. So to what degree do you think this is homemade? And if we find the right remedies, this sort of imaginary of the abyss is going to be calmed and we're going to have fewer people taking advantage of that in our politics. Uh, it's an excellent question. One of the pushbacks I got when that book came out, our mutual friend Jonathan Rauch, by the way, wrote a otherwise very generous review in which he said, time to start thinking should be renamed time to start drinking. <laughs> 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 which I thought was a good line. And my response was, because I know people are suspicious of British accents on this subject, is if it were a book about Britain, it would be time to start sniffing glue. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, one of the pushbacks I got from people is, look, America has faced bigger challenges than this, and we've come together and solved it. And examples being, um, you know, the um, Great Depression, uh, Pearl Harbor, Sputnik, even the Japanese sort of industrial predation of the late 80s. America has got its act together and it's overcome, hmm. which is true. Uh, but my response to that um, is that the kinds of challenges America is facing today are not shock Pearl Harbor overnight things. Right. Even 9-11 wasn't that, that produced bipartisan consensus and therefore mm. collective action. This, the kind of challenges America are facing today are polarizing. They're paralyzing of political action. And therefore, those kinds of responses are not the ones we should expect. And I believe perhaps more strongly in that thesis today than I did four or five years ago. So there's sort of three different questions here, right? So one is, what course is America likely to take? The second is, you know, what course would America take if it did the best policies it could, right? So, so there's sort of a story that says, look, okay. I'm skeptical about the future of America because I think we won't get our act together politically. But if we did it would be fine. I mean, there's a different story that says, you know what, even if we take all of the right policies and have all the right political responses, a lot of this decline is still inevitable because of the shifting economic power in the world and all of the consequences that come from that. And I guess I've had this very, very speculative thought over the last days that perhaps the historical preconditions for something like liberal democracy are moving from West to East. 
as power and economic growth is also moving from west to east. But what you need in order to have stable liberal democracy is a very rapid increase in living standards from one generation to the next, which is difficult to do once you're fully developed in the technology frontier. And you need to have a lot of power, which gives you confidence in the world and makes it more difficult for nasty populists to exploit fears about the wider world um, against political opposition and so on. And for I'm somewhat skeptical that all of Asia will embrace liberal democracy, all of Africa will embrace liberal democracy, actually it may be that sort of the basic conditions under which liberal democracy is possible are starting to look more promising in rapidly developing Asian and African and Latin American societies than they are in North America and Western Europe. And that perhaps for some of those same deep reasons, we actually can't, and this is my most paranoid thought, but we actually just cannot save liberal democracy here in the long run because the conditions are going against it. That's a fascinating, well, set of questions, really, and points. Can I just make two um, sort of observations? One is, before I moved here, just a year after you did, in, in 2006, I was based in India um, for five years. And mm -hmm. I think I learned more in those five years than any other five-year patch of my life hmm. um, as the, the Financial Times bureau chief there in Delhi. And, um, you know, India was unique amongst developing countries in that it chose to be a democracy at independence in 1947. And one brief 18-month emergency in the 1970s has remained so ever since. And people attribute that to unique Indian things like um, the fact that its elites were very sort of British, Nehru and, and others and wanted to basically be the last Englishman to rule India. There's sort of, and that it's highly plural, noisy, um, mixed, naturally liberal, therefore, environment. All of which is true. But I think when looking at the outlook today for democracy, um, the greatest source of hope in the world and one I have least doubt about its continuity is India. Mm. Uh, but the real reason is not just because it's a sort of sheer pluralistic culture. It's because they've got growth. And they've got right. growth as far as the eye can see. It would take a serious screw up to, for India to stop growing. I mean, yeah. it's not inconceivable, but it would take real incompetence for that sort of autopilot plane to crash. And so in, you know, it's got rising optimism. Inequality might be getting worse, but the poor know they're getting less poor and their children will be considerably less poor. So I spent a little bit of time in India and I agree with this sense of real optimism. And it's nice to go, especially today, to an English-speaking country where there's not declinism, but, but a deep sense of hope for the future. And I agree with you that one of the reasons to be hopeful about India and, and many other countries in the world is that there is real economic growth happening there. And a lot of people are being lifted out of poverty. Um, and that makes them probably more committed to the democratic system. There is also an, a more skeptical story to be told about India, which also brings us back to here, which is that there's been a surprisingly similar development of a politicization of ethnic and especially religious identity that's entered politics in a new way and punctured a sort of nice ideal of uh, common citizenship. So in the Indian context, this means that the BJP um, has really politicized Hinduism in a very radical way. And that we now have Narendra Modi, a prime minister, who you know really speaks on behalf of Hindus more than anybody else, who has dispensed with a lot of a traditional Indian political rhetoric around secularism and around you know everybody being Indian irrespective of religion and so on. 
and that seems to be quite popular in India. And and it makes me think that there's a similar issue here in certainly Western Europe around people saying the people who are native to, it's a slightly different issue, but the people who are native to this country are real Germans, Frenchmen, Italians, and all of those immigrants will never belong. But even in the United States, which has always been a country of immigration, has always been a multi-ethnic democracy, but has not been an equal multi-ethnic democracy where there seems to be a real rebellion against outside groups. And a lot of the point of Donald Trump's ANC convention speech, I am your voice, is the claim that he alone speaks for the people and he speaks for a conception of the people that excludes certainly Muslims, certainly political opponents, and so on and so forth. And so I, I guess my fear is that this identity category is going to trump the economic category. It's a really good and somewhat disturbing thought that the crisis of democracy we're seeing is not just about a particular Western hollowing out of the middle class, but there is something over and above that in countries like the Philippines, not just India, that is producing a need for strong men, a more authoritarian sort of impulse from the mm. electorate. And I don't know what the answer to that is. I do, do you remember when, I mean, you were probably too young, you probably weren't yet a student, but um, in the early 90s when Anthony Giddens at mm. the London School of Economics, you know, in some ways the father of third way thinking, talked about countries that were more open and global economically mm. being more vulnerable to political nationalism because the sense of belonging and control people had lost huh. in I their economic lives, the anonymity, the sort of, they made up for mm. with being more politically I sort of sometimes think back on that as a useful yardstick, but it wouldn't really explain what's happening in India. I would say that if Modi, who's doing all the things you say he's doing, he's a Hindu nationalist, the Hindu nationalists, the RSS, borrow consciously of absorbed neo-fascist mm. sort of symbolism, practices, and organic view of the nation, straight from Italy, from Mussolini, I, I would say that India is so federal... It's so multilingual hmm. that if Modi really did want to sort of steamroller their system, I think he'd fail. Um, hmm. And for that reason, because he's a savvy man, he's a nasty piece of work. I mean, I covered him in the Gujarat riots of 2002. He's a nasty piece of work, but he's a savvy man. Even if he did try, which I don't think he will, I think he would fail. But everything you've said is correct. Right. I, I mean, that is one hope I do have for, for North America and perhaps for Great Britain, for I think Britain falls sort of somewhere along towards the middle of that continuum. Mm -hmm. But that in the United States, it's just very difficult to see how you can make this country monoethnic, right? I mean, it's just, if you live anywhere in a big metropolitan city, it, it's just not possible. There's too many people um, who are not part of a sort of Trumpist ideal of what an American is for them to be able to win that fight entirely. So you may be able to exclude certain groups. I mean, you know, there's three million Muslims in this country, and I think you could imagine real ongoing discrimination of some sort. But but it's it's, it's very difficult, I think, for the sort of mono-ethnic, monocultural conception of a nation to win at this wider level. Um, that may be different in, in Western Europe and certainly in Central and Eastern Europe and Australia and places like that. So in that sense, the docs may be loaded in favor of democracy in terms of identity in places like North America, 
but it may be loaded in favor of liberal democracy in terms of economics in places like Western Europe, where for all kinds of political and other reasons, it's easier to counteract some of the distributional consequences for globalization. And so in the end, the relative fates of Western Europe and North America may wind up depending in part on what is really driving this crisis, whether it's identity or whether it's economic stagnation. Do you think, I mean, when you look at the trends in the economy, we focus a lot on median wage stagnation, mm. inequality, and declining income and mobility, but that sort of triple cocktail of that hits at the whole American creed of equality of opportunity. But one thing we don't focus on enough, I think, is volatility in people's mm. lives, economic insecurity. Yeah. And, you know, moving to contract labor away from being formally employed is a major trend, economic trend. And people, the risk has been shifted onto individuals. Companies or governments used to bear the risk for you. Mm. You are now as an individual asked to bear the risk. And so I think people feel their loss of control of their lives. Yep. And I do think the take back control phenomenon, you know, you, it might be sort of expressed in terms of sovereignty with Britain. Yep. But I do think it's visceral and it's personal. It's very male too. You asked me at the beginning um, about out there in America when I travel, what, what I sort of feel. I don't, and this is my optimistic point, I don't feel America is about to become a sort of identitarian white nationalist country. That's not my fear. And I share your view. I don't think the Constitution is going to be shut down. I don't think, you know, that's the kind of thing we should fear. I think elsewhere in the world where you see democracies ending, it's no longer by coup. Hmm. It's by continuing to pretend to be a democracy. Yes, yeah. So it's a much more ins insidious, subtle threat. Right. That we, I fear. We, we, we're going we're gonna to say that we're a democracy 40, 50 years from now. Um, whether or not we really are is a more exactly. question. Exactly. And I think that's a more pertinent worry. It's a more insidious fear. And I think Trump has... You know, well, we'll see. We'll see with Trump. I don't want to predict how the, this could end up. Because it could, it could end well. You know, the system could really shut him down. I don't think that'll happen, but it could. What should people be doing either in terms of organizing or writing or resisting or in terms of, you know, rethinking our politics to try and survive this dangerous moment? Well, I'm impressed by what you've um, been doing and others like you. I mean, I, I know that you um, have recently become an American citizen. Uh, not yet. Oh, um, I thought I'm, okay, I'm about, about to. I've recently been approved for American citizenship. You better since, hurry. Since, 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 since it's a <laughs> felony for me to claim to be an American citizen, I want to be very clear that I'm not. The oh, USA is that has, right? Not yet. Yes. It's one of the things you asked at a citizenship interview, whether you've ever claimed to be a U.S. citizen. Is that correct? Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm not. I've got a green card, I'm <laughs> happy to say, so I won't claim to be a citizen. But I read uh, the interview Jonathan Rauch did with mm. you in the um, Atlantic Monthly that's coming out in the next issue. And you said very eloquently and convincingly that America was still a place where Europe is going dark, but where it's still worth investing hope in this system of universal liberal democratic values, which I share. I share your view. Mm. And then, of course, Trump came along and won. Yeah. So I guess my question to you is, what, as a soon-to-be citizen would you recommend? Because I think you're better qualified to answer <laughs> the question this, this you asked it. me. I don't know. This is what I'm doing with show to find out from from people who, who have better answers than I do. I mean, I, I think there's, there's two things. I think it is a matter of really standing up 
to attacks on the political system and on basic democratic norms and making it very clear that this is not just a partisan political fight where we don't just disagree about particular issues of policy, but that what we want is to really defend the basic consensus that, that there are certain ways you govern, that you respect the independence and the importance and the loyalty of institutions that stop you from doing some of the things you want to do, like independent courts, Congress, and so on. But I really also think, and this is why, why I enjoyed your book so much, that it's a matter of figuring out what vision to offer people and what actually to do. That we're not going to win the election in 2020 by talking about how terrible Donald Trump is, but we need to actually offer a positive vision that can a counter narrative to the declinism that you were talking about, mm -hmm. right? But this is not, we're not about to enter the abyss. We actually have a way of making America a proud force in the world, but more importantly, that America has a way for making its citizens feel like they have their lives under their control. Yeah, and that's the big holy grail, isn't it? You know, I think America's relative decline is quite different from absolute decline, mm -hmm. and that all kinds of things could be done that won't reverse America's relative decline, and it isn't necessarily a bad thing that America's relatively declining, others are growing. In a Pax Americana world, others are growing, and economics is not a zero-sum game. When China gets richer, America doesn't get poorer. Geopolitics is a zero-sum game. So America's relative decline as a share of the world economy is going to affect America's control, but not necessarily its influence, not necessarily its sort of um, standard-bearing as a model, as a shining city, for other countries to follow. It's hypothetically within America's power to get back on that course. My deep dread is, is it's veering very, very rapidly in the opposite direction. Yeah, so it may be not as time to, to, to start drinking, but a time to start thinking carefully about how to turn relative decline into something that citizens feel as a bearable force and something that, that, that can go together with no absolute decline in their life standards and their hopes um, and how to manage that relative decline. That, that seems right to me. Thank you so much for coming in, Ed. This was incredibly fun and, and very insightful. Enormous pleasure and likewise. Thank you, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. We're now three episodes in and starting to grow a pretty good audience. But to succeed, we need your help. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate it on iTunes. Please tell your friends all about it and share it on Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or Snail Mail. And finally, please send suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.